Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Well, good morning, everyone. Good afternoon, good evening, wherever you may be tuning in from. I'm Bill Glasgow from the Volcker Alliance, and this is Special Briefing. It's coming to you from the Volcker Alliance and the Penn Institute for Urban Research. Our regular co-host, Susan Walker, is off today, and we're pleased to welcome as a special guest co-host, my friend Nora Fitzpatrick of the New York Fed, and like me, a Penn IUR fellow. Hi, Nora. So, uh, and today we have a terrific program, which is also brought to you through a generous grant from the Century Foundation. Today's subject is the physical with an F, as well as the physical with a PHY impact of climate change, just as the Glasgow COP talks have wrapped up with some commitments to decarbonize. And we'll see how that works out. It's kind of tentative and long term and subject to change, obviously. Shifting away from a carbon based economy may have enormous impacts on those affected by climate change. Think of heat, fire, floods, storms, and so on. But de-emphasizing carbon will also deeply affect communities that depend on coal, oil, natural gas, and electric power generation. The infrastructure bill that just passed Congress and was signed by President Biden, that'll address some of these concerns, but others will linger on. For example, I was just noticing a clip the other day about Harris County, Texas, which is the Houston area. They're looking at building a flood mitigation tunnel system. They've already approved $2 billion bond issue, but now they're looking at burying the tunnels more than 100 feet underground. I'm not sure where the water will drain out to. This is a bayou, but this is a long, long-term project. It's going to cost billions and billions. How this will be managed, financed, approved, heaven knows, but this is what we're looking at. Long-term problem, long-term impact. So with us today to discuss this very weighty topic are Nora Woodstruck, who's the ESG maven at S&P. And notice this is a two Nora show, which is a first for us in our 25-odd presentations. Emily Robert, who oversees ESG as a credit analyst at PIMCO in Minneapolis. Huey Newsom, repeat panelist, thank you very much, and the Wayne County CFO in Michigan, and Tim Coffin, who is, if you wish, Mr. Sustainability at Breckenridge Capital in Boston. It's a great panel for a great topic. Everybody on this panel lives and breathes the subject every day. You'll find everyone's full IDs in the program material and contact slide that we'll put up at the end, and a few housekeeping notes, please. All audience members are muted, and your cameras are turned off. We've taken questions in advance from, from registrants, and thank you very much for those, and we'll leave plenty of time for discussion. We don't take questions live. We'd like to just keep the flow and, and get right to the matter. And this and all past episodes are archived on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites, as long as with some great material that Nora Woodstruck has provided us on climate change, climate change policy, credit ratings, and the like. Nora actually published a great paper on this over the summer, and that'll be up on the archive site with some other S&P material. Let's get started with uh, Nora Woodstruck. Thanks very much. The floor is yours. 
Thank you, Bill, and thank you to the Volcker Alliance for having me here on behalf of SP to talk about how we as a credit rating agency incorporate two of the most fundamental environmental risks that are most acute for credit quality, which is climate transition risk and also acute and chronic physical risks. But as the panelists starting this off, I wanted to make a couple of high-level points before I get into some of those nuances, and that is at S&P, we've historically captured ESG risks and opportunities within our sector-specific criteria. So if you're a local government or if you're a state or if you're a public power utility, those risks and opportunities have been captured within the criteria we use to apply ratings in those sectors. In October, we did publish environmental, social, and governance principles and credit ratings criteria where this aspect was reiterated, but also we talked about five principles that are really inherent into our analysis of ESG risks and opportunities. And that is, first of all, that our credit ratings don't have predetermined time horizons. We do have outlooks that are typically up to two years, but the actual credit rating itself, there's no predetermined time horizon for that. And that gives the flexibility to incorporate the evolving nature of ESG risks and opportunities. And when those risks or opportunities become more material within our credit rating analysis, because we have sufficient visibility of what's actually changing the credit profile relative to ESG, we can incorporate that. We also identified the fact that ESG risks and opportunities can vary based on an industry or a geography or even the individual characteristics of the issuer itself. And so all of that is captured within that principles criteria and reiterated within our sector specific criteria as well. The other thing I want to just quickly mention is that I specifically look at how ESG factors affect an issuer's credit quality. ESG is so ubiquitous in the market that it can mean something different depending upon what seat that you sit in. So as an example, sometimes we get a lot of questions about whether or not green bonds affect our credit rating analysis. Typically, we don't opine on the use of proceeds for a transaction, which is how those labels are derived, whether it's green or social or sustainable. And so, you know, it typically is only factored into our analysis when maybe the use of green bonds is part of a multi-pronged risk management strategy of how a community is becoming more resilient against environmental risks. It is also factored in based on sort of what Bill was talking in his opening remarks that the cost of projects are expensive and sometimes a green bond may be issued as a labeled transaction, but what we're looking at is how that affects an issuer's fixed cost profile with the advent of that type of debt or any type of debt, if you will. You know, it's really just the aspect of the fact that it's a labeled transaction doesn't really get factored into our analysis. But getting back to what we're here to talk about today is how we look at climate transition risk. 
And we believe at S&P that climate transition risk is really accelerating for U.S.-based issuers in the municipal market. And this is driven by changes in a federal policy direction on this issue. It's the U.S. recommitting to the Paris Agreement and also the U.S.'s participation in the Global Methane Pledge, which was one of the outcomes of COP26 in Glasgow, as Bill also mentioned. Probably the most visual sector that deals with this is public power utilities. And how we rate them is based on how they're working towards replacing their carbon-based energy sources and supply. Now, some of our public utilities are ahead of the game, particularly in California, where there's been a much more stringent approach to replacement of renewable energy sources much earlier than maybe the rest of the country has dealt with. And how we look at that is through an aspect in our criteria called the operational management assessment. It looks at how diverse the power supply is and also what type of contracts, if it's just a retail utility, these entities have to participate in and how long these contracts are in place for. So sometimes retail utilities, their transition risk is really captured in the type of supply that they receive from a wholesale or a cooperative utility. And it can be difficult for them to get out of those contracts. So we also have to sort of look through the lens of those contracts and see how the providers are working towards renewable energy sources. The other thing that we're looking at from a high-level perspective outside of the public utility sector is how certain economies are reliant on the energy sector to generate revenue to fund operating budgets. So, for example, when oil was trending at negative dollars per barrel during the onset of the pandemic, we moved ratings for Alaska and Wyoming because of their reliance on severance taxes that fund their budgets from the oil and gas sector. We also look at how this energy sector contributes to jobs and economic activity, maybe the gross state product or the exports that the state is heavily reliant on to fund their operating budgets. And also at the local level, we sometimes think that the risk is even more concentrated because the economic base is even smaller than, say, the state economic base. So, for example, in Texas, there's areas of Texas like the Permian Basin that is heavily reliant on energy. We think that the acute risk from energy transaction would probably be a lot more influential to credit quality for entities within that region than maybe it is for the state as a whole. So those are just a couple of examples. I know I just have a few minutes here with you to do my prepared remarks. So I wanna move on to physical risks and how we look at chronic and acute physical risks within our analysis. For acute risks, we really wanna understand how issuers have made their financial profile resilient against severe weather events that can really create a draw on reserves or liquidity in the immediate term before maybe FEMA dollars are available to offset some of those costs. So we talked to issuers about not only how those reserve and liquidity policies are set up, but also what are their sort of broader emergency managing planning? Do they have a employees that are familiar with the FEMA reimbursement process, and also maybe how they're proactively changing their building codes so that they are asking developers to use more sustainable requirements to guard against severe weather events. 
When we're looking at it from a chronic basis, we're also looking at an issuer's long-term capital planning documents, if they have a specific resiliency planning document, and how those resiliency requirements are captured within their capital planning. Again, as Bill mentioned, investments in infrastructure relative to making an area more resilient is expensive. And we know that the community or the stakeholders have to be invested as well. So we also talk to issuers about how they're communicating climate risks to their community, how they're figuring out how to fund these, maybe through grants, through debt, through other aspects of financing. And then we also are talking to them about what are their views on these issues? How are they thinking about them? Are they using adaptation within their planning documents? Meaning, are they looking at various climate scenarios over a varying time horizons to ensure, like, does this capital project serve a sea level rise scenario that is applicable for the next 10 years? And how can it be adapted if that climate scenario changes to a 20-year or 30-year time horizon? So finally, I just want to address some regional differences because I think that's important. From a climate transition perspective, I kind of already mentioned the fact that some of our California public power utilities are, might be ahead of some other areas of the country relative to their more stringent statutory provisions. California is also one of many states that uses the renewable portfolio standards scenario. So we find that as being a proactive way. But we do think that there are areas like Kentucky and West Virginia that just based on their topography, based on the entrenchment that they have with coal, it may take longer and it may be in some cases less feasible for them to transition as quickly away from coal-based or carbon-based sources. And in terms of chronic and acute risks, you know, Florida always comes to mind. A lot of entities in Florida are exposed to sea level rise, to tidal flooding, to severe weather events. But there are certain situations in Florida, like the Southeast Florida Regional Climate Change Compact that many entities participate in. And the modeling and the climate scenarios that that regional group sets forth is used by the participants to sort of identify and inform their capital investments. So we think that regional planning is really important in that regard to help mitigate environmental risks within the credit profiles. Thank you. Thank you, Nora, for providing us with how you're looking at this topic from multiple dimensions. We'll be back to you for more discussion. We're now going to get the perspective from Emily Robert who's joining us from PIMCO Municipals, where she is Vice President and Credit Risk Analyst. Welcome, Emily. Thank you, Nora, and hi, everyone. You know, it's great being able to follow Nora because I'm looking at things also with a credit lens, but from the investor perspective and thinking about when we're deciding what types of bonds we want to buy or hold, you know, what is, how are we factoring climate risk in? You know, and coming down to the central question that we're talking about today of what are the financial impacts that we're expecting to see from climate change on state and local governments? And, you know, I think some a lot of the risks that Nora talked about are things that we're thinking about. And when we all think about this question of how might climate change impact state and local governments, our, our minds often first go to 
some of these acute risks, the natural disasters we've seen so much of in the last few years, this increase in drought, in wildfires, in increased precipitation events. And what's hard about categorizing that is that all of these things have always been happening. It's that climate change we look at as a threat multiplier. So it's worsening these. And what this really comes down to is that our built environment in our communities and our cities, you know, we're built for a different time period where we weren't dealing with temperature increasing in the same way that it is. And so we're having to think about how can we adapt and how can we manage what these changes are. And so we're really focused on what risks are communities facing, what is being done from an adaptation perspective, and on the transition side as well, thinking through what are communities doing as we transition off fossil fuels. And because the reality is, you know, both of these are very important because the amount of carbon and other greenhouse gases that we've already emitted into the atmosphere have pretty much baked in for the next 15 to 20 years, what is going to happen? We can't make a huge dent right now. So the transition side is important for what we will see happen 20 years from now, which is sometimes it's hard for people to wrap their heads around. But I think especially for those of us with children or grandchildren or nieces and nephews, it's incredibly important to think about what their future is going to look like. So how does that boil down to credit analysis? You know, so one of the things I wanted to add on to, you know, outside of kind of the risk metrics and what Nora was referencing that we're thinking about when we're looking at these bonds is really honing in on the adaptation side. And I think for issuers, for state and local governments, this is where the disclosure that's being provided to the market is incredibly important. This is your chance to tell your story. What are you doing about these risks? So a lot of us access third-party data providers. We can find a lot of data out there right now on what risks specific communities might be facing. But what is being done at the individual level is not always as readily available. And so if we're thinking about what is being done for an adaptation perspective, the individual community, what they're providing as disclosure can be really helpful. So for example, the city of San Francisco in their bond disclosure catalogs exactly you know, costs of what they're expecting to do, how much it might be, all of those kinds of expenses are being included there. The other thing we're thinking about with adaptation is how is a community going to pay for it? You know, that's the big question. Uh, is this going to come from debt? Will it come from within the community, from state and local grants? What we're noticing is probably common sense and not surprising, which is that wealthier communities have generally more means to do some of this adaptation. So there's been some notable examples. There's an article in the New York Times recently in the Hamptons that there's quite a lot being done there by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to shore up these Hamptons. There's a Marin County, some articles about what communities there are doing kind of extremes to try to maintain their water supplies. You know, this has always been a part of credit analysis, thinking about the resources of a community, poverty rates, socioeconomic indices. But I think it's even more magnified when it comes to a community facing climate risk, because one, you may have wealthier property where it will be harder to buy it out. So there's more of an emphasis on rebuilding. Whereas what we are seeing, and I'm not the first person to point this out, is lower income communities. You're tending to see more of a tendency towards buyouts or retreat which then as a community overall, there's a loss in that tax base if you're buying out those properties. doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, but it can affect the community overall. So there's definitely a widening birth there and a chance for federal 
or state or other dollars to maybe come in and try to help with some of those inequities. One other thing I wanted to touch on is just when we're talking about the transition side, you know, the federal infrastructure bill, I know it's come up a few times. You know, we've talked about communities historically relying on the fossil fuel industry. And as we've moved off for some of these sectors, especially in the transportation space, how we might move towards other new ways of doing things. And so the infrastructure bill, I won't say it's the first to put money into climate, but certainly the largest to put money towards climate and to really make it a part of the everyday and what is being done and how we think about things, you know, with money going specifically to EV chargers, money going towards grid projects. And so some of this is going to take a long time. The federal agencies still have to think about what that means and how that money will be used and what those programs and projects will look like. But it's bringing people together to force these conversations and start thinking about these areas that we haven't thought about as much. And so there's a lot of value there. And then the last thing I'll just say, you know, it always comes up in these conversations about pricing is climate risk being priced into the market. And I think what we've seen is there's a lot of demand for municipal bonds. So a lot of things are arguably not being priced into the market the way they should be. I will say we're seeing a shifting among different firms. And I know for us, there are certain bonds that we're seeing higher climate risk where they might not be suitable for portfolios they would have been suitable for before. So if, you know, based on risk appetite of a client or of a specific strategy, you might be seeing some of these bonds move down in where they are. You know, if you're looking at high credit quality portfolio, you may not see something with significant flooding risk in that portfolio. And so over time, I would expect we would see more pricing impact. And anecdotally, you know, I've heard of some kind of single site hospital or other projects where it it may have had an impact, a, a minor one. And would also say that there's a lot of bonds in the municipal market that are not traded frequently. And so if you're a smaller issuer that's probably more at risk, we might not actually be seeing that pricing impact yet because those bonds just aren't being traded as frequently. But I think this also gets to that question of if you are a community that's most in need of adaptation help, what you might be paying over time to issue debt or to get that help could be going up. And so another place where things like the federal infrastructure money or other, which isn't necessarily adaptation focused, but other money coming from U.S. Army Corps of Engineers or other entities may be needed for those communities because the bond market may not be as viable an option. Thank you very much, Emily. That's very instructive. And we've had the view kind of from 10,000 feet from the investor point of view. Let's go to the, literally to the county hall up point of view, the street up point of view with, with Huey Newsom. Wayne County recently announced a $5 million flood relief program, which I believe is financed by the state. That's short-term uh, mitigation. But the county also has a longer-term climate change policy. And he and I were, were discussing about a week ago about the impact of the electric car industry on the entire Detroit metro area on employment, investment. This is both a huge risk and a, and a huge potential windfall in terms of jobs and tax revenue. And nothing is more closely related to decarbonization than electric cars and trucks. Huey, uh, would you mind turning your camera and mic on and, and join us, please? Thanks, Bill. A lot to get into. So let me start yes, by kind of piggybacking on what Emily and Nora have been discussing and then branch out into some of the things, Bill, that you mentioned that are going on at the county. We just you know, are starting to receive our scores. You know, I'm, Wayne County is an issue, or obviously. So we're just now starting really re- to receive our scores, our ESG scores for the first time. 
Moody's did walk me and CFO and a couple of us through where we stand in terms of E, the S, and the G, and ESG. And one thing that came that was prevalent, talking about some of the things that came up before, were judged on adaptability, our exposure to the related disasters, but we were also rated unfavorably, as you can imagine, to carbonization, at least the carbonization within the county because of the automotive industry. And so one thing that we are very excited about in Wayne County, obviously, the amount of work we're doing to move manufacturing to net zero. President Biden just this week visited GM's electric vehicle plant. And on top of that, there are other initiatives going on, and we expect a lot more investment locally in the creation of electric vehicles. Of course, the challenge is we can manufacture those. We also have to make sure that those plants are net zero from cradle to grave so that the impact of production of those vehicles, not just the the carbon that's emitted from those vehicles, are also a positive or at least a, a net zero impact on the environment, which, of course, many of those facilities are and will be. The other thing I think that is important that you mentioned, though, when we talk about the adaptability portion of what we're looking at, you know, the county did receive $340 million of ARPA money, and we just reported to the county commission and made public our intent to bring forth specific initiatives to fund sustainability office, obviously, if that was approved and those efforts are approved by our commission, we'll be able to launch a dedicated sustainability office, which looks at not just the adaptation to wet major weather events, but also how we are able to move county operations and support the transition away from carbon within the county for our small business and business footprint. And yes, to bring matters home, this summer was a bit of a was a big challenge to Wayne County. We're still experiencing lingering effects. You know, we experienced our second 500-year flood in a seven-year time span back in June of 2021. And we did, you're right, we did receive $5.5 million from the state government in order to help us, uh, you know, in order to help us address the damage created by those floods. But our game plan going forward is, in line share what will be part of that sustainability plan, will be focused on drains, will be focused on really changing our uh, drains and wastewater infrastructure to make sure that we're able to deal with the impacts of future 500-year floods and other calamitous events as well in the region. You know, also one thing, we we aren't, say, a Florida in that we're in a a hurricane alley. We're also down the West Coast doing a lot of the wildfires and some of the challenges that you see on the western part of the United States. But one thing that we are keenly aware of, the Great Lakes are starting to um, ice cover during the wintertime due to climate change we have less and less ice cover or fewer, fewer days where the Great Lakes are frozen, which means that we even have, you know, not just the rain events, but also the Great Lakes themselves are starting to rise in level. And so similar to what you see in sea level on the coast, we're starting to talk about what that looks like here here in the um, Great Lakes region, particularly in Southeast Michigan, where in Wayne County, I'm talking about. And so that sustainability office and that sustainability plan which we hope is approved for us to you know, use some of the ARPA money to fund that, would address some of those things. One thing I'd be remiss if I don't mention, the city of Detroit is one of the poor cities in the country, which of course is the county seat of Wayne County. And because of that, we always have to be thinking about the S 
portion of ESG as well. And rating agencies have communicated to us that they're looking at us as they continue to mature their ESG rating uh, methodologies. They are looking at, you know, how well we're dealing with the disparities in health and access in disasters such as floods, underrepresented minorities, and the poor tend to have more exposure to these disasters. They have less ability to adapt to these disasters. And so one of the things that we, not just for the rating agencies, obviously, in terms of our ESG ratings, but also what we have to think about in terms of our constituents, we have to be thinking about the environmental justice portion of that. I mean, you know, I think, you know, I'm sensitive to this, obviously, because I used to be the CFO of Flint right after the water crisis. And so you know, we can't just focus on the aggregate adaptation to weather disasters or such. We also have to be thinking about how do we take care of those that are usually disproportionately impacted from such events and make sure that we're addressing that and have plans to address that. That's a very important point. I'm really glad you brought that up because unlike in past decades, the S, the societal impact, the equity angle of infrastructure investment is very important and was not always considered when a highway was built or a bridge was built or a sewage plant was built. This is a, a new lens and obviously why we brought a lot of ESG people together for this discussion. So we'll return to that in the Q&A. I want to remind everybody that you're tuned into special briefing from the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. This and the entire series is available in the archives on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR website. We encourage you to, to go there and browse as you'd like. Also, thank you to the Century Foundation for a generous grant to support this program. Tim Coffin is batting cleanup. That's often a, a very advantageous place to be in baseball, certainly. And it's time to sort of wrap it all up and tell us about your viewpoint from Boston, which has been dealing with, which is dealing certainly with harbor flooding issues and since the creation of the Back Bay in the 19th century. So you have a long experience. You had the big project to clean up the Charles, yet you had uh, some severe st storm damage as of late, a lot of coastal communities, and also a lot of equity issues. Right. And thank you, Bill. And thank you for including me. I'm very flattered to be included on this panel. It's very interesting. And just to share where my perspective is coming from for the audience, the Breckenridge is a fixed income manager and a big chunk of our business, about 37 billion of the assets we manage are in municipal bonds. And so similar to Emily, we really do understand the, that there are risks here that need to be addressed. But I think more generally, one of the themes that we really understand and that we've really been trying to hammer home to our clients and all of our stakeholders is that munis are on the front lines of climate change, both the municipal market. And from that, I mean, both from a risk standpoint and from an opportunity standpoint. And from a risk standpoint, I'll underscore a few of Emily's points without going into it too deeply, but we often get asked by investors, why should I care about climate risk if, if my bonds are going to mature in five years? And Emily made the point that climate really is a risk accelerator or a threat multiplier, I think was the term she used. And what that really means to us and should mean to all investors is that it's, climate can magnify the existing credit issues, particularly for distressed communities, and can really become what we would recognize as a competing fiscal demand. So understandably and deservedly, our market, the municipal bond market, really enjoys very strong investor confidence. 
And I don't see any weakness in that, but it's something that we definitely should value. And it certainly benefits us all because, you know, all these communities have great reliable access to low-cost capital to build essential public projects. And so the viability of this market is over the long term is obviously is key. And so when we say that municipals are on the front line of climate risk from a credit standpoint, that's something that I think we all really need to be paying attention to. We recognize that Across all the capital markets, our belief is that really the first tremors of climate are going to be felt, if not already being felt, in the municipal bond market. Of course, there's the opportunity side as well. And I think that is where we also have the opportunity to sit in a very powerful standpoint. And, you know, interestingly, Bill, just listening to all the news over the last couple of weeks of COP26 and and even the Paris Agreement and the Kyoto Protocol and the PRI, all of those things from my vantage point anyway, seem very far away. I can't go there. I'm not invited. And yet I really recognize, and I think we all recognize, that climate is very local. And the solutions to climate are going to be very local. And that's something that's very unique to the U.S. municipal bond market, right? Our infrastructure, the decisions on what to finance and how to finance it, is not being handled by some big federal bureaucracy, right? It's towns and cities that are deciding and voters and policymakers. And I believe that, you know, if you are a chip manufacturing company and you run out of water in your community, you can up and move, right? But if you're a southwestern city facing drought vulnerability, you're there, you're facing it, right? You can't leave. And so, so much of the infrastructure, I think, is going to have to be and is already being addressed at the local level. And for that reason, I actually believe that the U.S. municipal market can be an incredibly powerful lever in U.S. climate action. I think this has, to a big degree, starts with disclosure. And I think it needs the participants in the market need to understand that it starts in the budgeting process and kind of connecting that process to a lot of the investor issues that were brought up earlier in the panel from a credit standpoint. But at the end of it, you know, what I kind of would say in summation, batting cleanup to this panel and kind of leading into some questions is we are actually sitting in a very valuable position to really move the needle. This is a $4 trillion market. It's mature. It works. It operates quickly. And I think we're in a unique position to really move the needle on climate action particularly here in the United States, but also potentially for a model elsewhere. So that's kind of my cleanup perspective. And I hope that helps prompt some questions for everybody. That's a terrific point, Tim. I'm going to turn to, to Nora to, to start the Q&A uh, in one second. But one observation, you mentioned the $4 trillion municipal market. It's interesting that the muni market sells about $500 billion a year, or states and localities borrow about $500 billion a year, more or less. Most of that is for capital project. So part of that right now is because interest rates are very low, has been going for refinancings to lower the cost of debt service, which is a good thing. But it, correct me if I'm wrong, the rule of thumb is that for every dollar you borrow, about half goes in the ground and half goes to pay for, for interest, debt service, other costs of issuance. So the municipal market easily has the ability to raise a quarter of a billion dollars a year for infrastructure. 
states and localities fund 80% of US infrastructure as it is. Over 10 years, that's two and a half trillion dollars of potential infrastructure investment in nominal terms. That's considerably larger than the current infrastructure bill or the Build Back Better plan. Everybody is, is all disturbed about the inflationary implications of Build Back Better. And yet states and localities have no problem, have no problem raising a couple of trillion dollars over 10 years just in an ordinary order of business. So if that can be shifted, tilted toward environment and equity, that's a really interesting development. And it's, and it's a great point. So I'm going to turn back to Nora Fitzpatrick at live for the New York Fed to kick off the questions, if you would. Great. Thanks, Bill. So I think we already saw today that having an understanding from these client-related risks from different and multiple perspectives is just essential. So on that note, you know, as we build kind of a more shared and integrative approach across the private and public sector for climate-related risk assessment, you know, how can we ensure that federal and local funding for ECG projects be applied in such a way that these projects impacts the social as well as the physical environment. And Tim, since we have you there, maybe we'll start with you and then if others have thoughts. If you don't mind, Nora, I'm just going to go back and say, I think that's the value of capital improvement planning in the United States happening at the local level, right? You know, what's great and that credit worthiness of the U.S. municipal market I think really starts with the essentiality of the projects that we have historically financed, right? Bill was kind of quoting some numbers. I think our analysts have made reference that I think about 20% of bonds are actually used for education, right? To build schools, public schools, K through 12 education. So I would say that in terms of things like the just transition and making sure that climate action is equitable, it needs to stay local. And that's really the value of the U.S. municipal bond market is that those budgeting decisions will be approved locally, whether it's by policymakers or taxpayers. I think there's also an aspect to how strategic and how long term these projects have to be considered for. One of the things in the municipal market is that we have a whole layer of sophistication. We have very sophisticated issuers like Wayne County. We have also sophisticated, you know, issuers that are very small. And so I think that's where the regional planning efforts can come into play, too, to help out some of the smaller entities that may not have the resources or the staff to do climate scenario planning that takes, you know, many years into account. And the cost of decarbonization in terms of our public power team, you know, it's expensive. It's it's not going to be, coal can be very cheap relative to some renewable sources. And especially if you're thinking about having to transition your infrastructure or the technology that comes with storing renewable energy that can be expensive, that can take a social toll on communities that don't have the demographics to support that. So I think it really takes into account how, how long a horizon management teams have to be thinking about to plan for these issues. Huey raised some of these questions also it seem to be very applicable to Wayne County in Detroit. Yeah, if I may. The way I look at it, you know, from an issuer standpoint, kind of answer your question, kind of making a point here. I have to answer the policymakers and I also have to answer to investors, right? I think that one thing that's, that I struggle with a lot is the idea of standardization, right? So 
I should be reporting on something. I'm sitting here in Wayne County, and there are certain things that my constituents are going to be sensitive to. But then if you go to Montana, that you've got an indigenous population that has different needs or different concerns looking at the S and the societal factors in the ESG. So the ability to standardize and talk the same language and really hone in on, I'll call a MISI, a mutually exclusive, collectively exhaustive list of societal factors we should all be thinking about. I think the fact that ESG investing and investors are looking at that more and more and more allows us all to kind of benchmark and understand what we all should be looking for, talking the same language in terms of expectations, where if the investor community wasn't as concerned about the S and ESG, like I was talking about before, it does that accountability we don't quite get there yet. I see ESG getting to a point where we see an expansion of societal factors that everybody is reporting on, disclosing on, investors are going to be sensitive to, and say, you know, I'm th- two, three, four, who knows how long it takes. But that process is definitely expedited because the investor community is concerned about it. And you have some very savvy thinkers I'm just trying to understand how that works. So it excites me. Of course, I'm going to have to be thinking about how to disclose and report on and collect data on those factors, but it's for the good. Can I bring up a question? So, you know, number one, is there a single score or is there an ESG score? I I know there are a lot of firms that are doing scores. So do we have different scores or single scores, specifically as green bonds? How about targets for reducing emissions uh, uh, or how much of a reduction will you see? So you wrap all these together and how do rating agencies and investors try to to score climate or environmental uh, or ESG rated issues? I mean, I think there's a few different things, I think, to your question and, and just to kind of separate ESG and green bonds, because I know that you know, often when people say ESG, we all have a different idea in our minds of what we mean. And so when you talk about an ESG score, that often relates to a lot of what we talked about today on the risk side of things. And so thinking about how do you assess somebody's risk or exposure to ESG factors. And so I know the rating agencies have all kind of done some variation of that or, you know, trying to assess that. We have in PIMCO, we have internally an ESG score that we assign to all of our bonds thinking about the risk side of things and also the leadership. So thinking about the opportunity side of ESG, are there places that are showing more leadership, they're more proactive, they're less exposed or naturally resilient to some of these risks. And then when we think about green bonds, there could be, you know, we do our own internal assessment of the green bonds and their strategic fit. We have third parties out there that are assigning if somebody is seeking out a label that could be assigning that. But typically, despite the two factors being kind of put together a lot in these discussions, it's an entirely separate analysis. It's an entirely separate way to look at it. So with the ESG score side, you're thinking about risk. With the green bond score or a bond rating, you're really thinking about how is that money being spent? What is the use of bond proceeds? Is it fitting with certain things? And you mentioned about targets with greenhouse gas reduction. You know, I think the target that a lot of places or people are coalescing around now is net zero. You know, how do we get to net zero and when? What's your commitment around that? What's your plan? Are you sticking with science-based targets with the Paris Accords? When we're talking to an issuer, what is your goal? What is your target? And those would be kind of the ones that we'd want to be 
ideally seeing happening there. That assessment, I guess, would be part of both. That's a bit part of the ESG score side, where are you heading? And then on the green bond side, how does this project that you're trying to get a, a green bond label for fit into that overall goal that you have of moving towards net zero? And I'll say from a credit rating agency perspective, so what's fortunate or unfortunate with the growth of ESG is that there's a lot of ESG scores, right? So in some cases, they're measuring sustainability of an organization. And I think the corporate side really looks at it from how sustainable is their organization or the product they produce or whatever. And I think that's how a lot of the market thinks about it. And so as Tim pointed out, it's a little bit different for governments. And I think governments have a wholly different mandate. Obviously, their primary mandate is ensuring sort of the safety of their community. And a lot of E is, is about that. The way we look at it, S&P, is with, through the lens of the materiality or the influence that it has on the issuer's credit profile. So all these sort of ESG factors like electrifying your fleets and potentially doing things like that that are very sustainable don't always overlap with like the credit analysis. But when they do, that means that there's some influence on budgetary performance, how you're prioritizing your fixed costs between debt and pension and OPEB and other costs that you have to manage like personnel. And so when it overlaps like that, that's when we consider it being, you know, influential into our credit rating analysis. So a single mechanism or a single framework, I think, is hard to achieve unless you're talking about disclosure. But I somewhat echo Huey's point of view, which is issuers really have to prioritize the risks or the opportunities for their own organization. And I think everyone on this call would sort of say, like, any disclosure is more than what we really have now. And so I think you just sort of have to start with your own organization. And maybe at some point, it coalesces like it did for swaps and pension and OPEB disclosure. But I think for now, the market just needs more, more of it, <laughs> if you will. And Bill, can I just take a thread from Nora's comment about materiality back to your question about emissions reductions? You know, emissions reductions are going to be material to the utility sector, probably more so than they may be a water authority, right? So from an investor standpoint, materiality is going to be sector specific, right? What's material in one sector? And so when it comes to things like emissions reduction targets, which you've brought up, I think from an investor's perspective, it really matters where it's most material. Same thing in the corporate sector, right? Like energy sector, emissions reduction is going to be much more material than it might be in the tech sector. Very good point. Nora Fitzpatrick, we have a great question from FEMA. Folks from FEMA have been loyal, uh, loyal attendees and supporters, and heaven only knows uh, you've been stretched rather thin in the past couple of years. We have a question in here. So federal programs have historically done the most to support local disaster recovery as the you know nation grapples all across in communities, climate-related events. How do we how do we think about using the current federal infrastructure funding to move from rescue and remediation to prevention and sustainability? Maybe Huey, obviously you've had experience on this front, um, deep expertise, so maybe you can start us off. That's a great question. And I think that the traditional model, in my opinion, will work, right? Which is 
federal government deploys through local government, right? And I think a great case study, if everything goes according to plan, will be you have the, I hate to say the perfect storm here, but you kind of do have the perfect storm where we had COVID and we have these recovery dollars, but you also have the right mentality at the federal level in terms of the president and his administration. At the same time, locally, we had floods that really were not related to COVID, but the timing was such that we had the availability of you know, recovery dollars and, and the tension and the prioritization, if you will, here that we would not have had before. So this is almost like the planets are lining up for us to kind of show that model of let the local governments decide what is the best way for them to help their populations adapt, right? So you want to save the world, but you act locally. And you, I think the federal government will, we will see ARPA, we will see the infrastructure bill really be deployed at a local level. And those locals, those local governments know the best way to deploy. One other thing I do want to mention is that, you know, as I think about the response to that question, going back to my previous point, kind of the guardrails or the standardization on what's the right thing to do, who needs to be thought about as we do this, as ESG ratings and I'll say accountability, accountability really matures. It provides that sort almost like a certification of how that's going to work, not just through our policymakers in FEMA and, and DC, but also with the investor community that's maturing in their terms of understanding environmental, climate, climate justice, environmental justice as well, to make sure that these dollars are deployed as efficiently as possible. Thank you, Huey. I'm going to give you the, the last word because we're approaching the top of the hour. Number one, Thank you, panelists, for joining Special Briefing and for giving us your time and your great intellect. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government's finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.